I'm Matsudiso, a musician, songwriter, producer and composer. I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other. If we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. Happy New Year, everyone. I've missed you. Well, it seems we're starting 2021 with a spillover of the whirlwind that was 2020. Insurrection at Capitol Hill in Washington, another lockdown for us in England. I know it can feel very dystopian at times, but if you've read my New Year's post on social media, you'll know that I'm even more convinced of building on unshakable things. Things that have always mattered, and in light of the world we're in, matter even more now. I spoke about some of these things in a bonus episode at the end of last year on building creative community with Ramona Harris. If you haven't listened to it yet, you should check it out. And I hope to continue to do that with the guests we have for the remainder of season two and beyond. Conversations to remind you that your creative expression is valuable and valued. So with no further ado, let me tell you about today's special bonus episode. We're talking money. And I think I forget whether it was Sam or Matsy that said it, you know, if you could do, if you can do what I do, do it. It's really that simple. If you don't, if you feel that I'm not worth being paid because you can do it or, or you can get someone to do it cheaper, why are we even having this conversation? What you don't get to do is to get me to do what you want me to do and pay me what you would, you're not prepared to pay someone else. The music industry contributes billions to nations' economies. I'm going to use the UK as an example because that's what I know. In a 2018 report by industry-funded body UK Music, they found that the music industry contributes £4.5 billion a year to the UK economy. But when we're talking about independent artists, when we're talking about female artists, again, the UK Music Copyright and Licensing Body, of which I'm a member, PRS for Music, that is, writers and creators, reported that women make up only 17% of their membership. And remember that 4.5 billion I was talking about. In that same 2018 report, black, Asian and other ethnic minority groups, some people call it BAME, and many of us have a problem with that term, but that's a conversation for another time. So let's say people of colour represent only 17.8% in the UK music industry. But why am I giving you these figures? It's twofold. The first being representation. When I think of the mainstream visual face of music, the artist with the most Instagram followers, the music that's celebrated, for better or for worse, I think of mainly young artists, many of whom in my research I didn't even know who they were. Have you heard of Baby or Pop Smoke or Juice World? If you haven't, then like me, you're old. And the umbrella term, which I'm not really a fan of, urban music. You'll probably know the Billie Eilishes, the Rihannas, the Lizzo's, the Beyonce's, the Ariana Grande's, the Dua Lipa's, the Stormzy's, the Ed Sheeran's. But what I'm trying to get at is that the visual or front-facing music industry 
isn't necessarily reflected in the data when it comes to both gender representation and earnings. To put it crudely, who is making all this money? I took a quick look at the Sunday Times 2020 richest UK musicians. Let me tell you, whoever says that you can't make a living in music hasn't spoken to these people. I put a link in the podcast blurb so you can see for yourself. Secondly, when it comes to wealth distribution, I'm not talking about major record labels or streaming services. We all know that they're making money. I'm wanting to ascertain how does a portion of this 4.5 billion reach the everyday musicians, the producers, the engineers, the songwriters who have often spent years training, who are really driven and it's not at all reflected in our earnings. Don't get me wrong, this isn't a podcast about why we aren't multimillionaires. It's actually, for me, a more serious ethical question about values. Since we live in a society where one way to attach value to something is to pay for it, why are the musicians, the composers, the producers who are doing the most work often making the least money? I remember hearing Chris Martin from Coldplay say that musicians spend hours and hours writing music, crafting songs, spending months, sometimes years in the studio, and then the songs on the record cost less than a cup of coffee. And this interview was at a time where people still bought CDs or paid for downloads. Now, the general expectation is to get music absolutely free. To help me answer some of these questions, I brought in some formidable women and made a point of including not just artists, but people who work in what I call the administrative side of the industry, law, label management and so forth. So let me introduce you to my guests. We have return guest, Grammy-nominated producer, singer, songwriter and composer Alev Lenz. You may remember Alev as my very first guest on season one of the podcast. The people who can write this pandemic out and then still make art, that's a very, that is a voice, it's a valid voice, but it's really just one of people who just had enough money in the bank. So we're going to lose the already underrepresented voices in art which is what art is. It tells us about who we are as people. I don't actually want to just have one, like I don't want to have just one version of music. <laughs> like I, we need to hear everybody's story to, to be fully human. So it's quite complex. We have music and media lawyer and business affairs consultant, Honey Onile Ere. Honey was head of legal and business affairs at Warner Chapel Music Publishing for 10 years after which she was Director of Legal and Business Affairs at BMG Rights Management, and she is currently at Global Digital Collection Society, AMRA. Honey also happens to be my lawyer. You kind of think, well, if I'm nice to them, they'll be nice to me. Well, mostly, most time they won't be. And there is a sense that if you can't value yourself, and like Sam, exactly as Sam said, even if it's 50 pounds, just get it in your head that this is worth something. We have Sam Campbell, who wears many hats. She's a creative business consultant, consultant music publishing manager and consultant label manager, amongst others, with an MBA from Imperial College Business School. Sam creates monetization models for independent artists and small to medium-sized enterprises. I had at one point when I started, um, you know, charging, I put a whiteboard on the on the wall because lots of people started asking me to do work and I wasn't really sure. And I said, this is the minimum I'm going to charge. And I made a little target and I put the amount in the middle and I just went no less than that. So whenever I was on the phone, I'd look at it. If somebody just called me up and said, I'd just look at it and I'd say, this is how much it is. And finally, we have L.A. based composer, producer, musician and dub lab radio host Shruti Kumar. 
But the amount of free labor that producing a record is, I have found, is um, insane. And I've gotten in so many fights with managers of artists about this labels because there is this people don't know actually the hours and time that go into it's not just like sitting in a room with an artist and telling them what to do um, at all. There's hours of editing and programming and recording and mixing and all these things. And often that's all used for the budget of creating the record. So whatever's left over for me is very little. You can read their full bios in the podcast blurb. We talk about navigating the vastly complex and amorphous world of the music industry. We talk about how to self-advocate, how to negotiate, how knowing your value has a direct impact on the price you place on your work. That's something I've been learning recently, even <laughs> uh, sticking up for myself. I just actually scored a film and my the rate was good. But then the amount of time it took me to finish the film was way more than what I would have charged. You know what I mean? The deadline kept extending and the revisions kept going. And I had to put my foot down um, in a way that I never have with someone hiring me. And I was afraid it seemed unprofessional. But I was like, hey, look, for what you've paid me, um, in my opinion, this score is pretty good. I don't have time anymore to do more free revisions. If you want to pay me a little more, I can. But you're asking incredible things of me. Um, and I feel like I've already worked for what you paid me. We talk about allies and creating strong networks. We are sold uh, a whole lot of crap about ourselves and told um, a whole lot of things that aren't True. And one is you don't, nobody makes it alone. None of the big shots that are getting paid well are there because they worked so hard and it was just, yes, everybody works hard, but it's, it's a lie that the people at the top and the people who make the most money work the hardest. That is actually completely the opposite way around. About the role that art generally and music more specifically plays in society. How do we quantify the value of music? Not the person making the music, but the music itself. We talk about the importance of protecting and therefore valuing the arts at a governmental level how this impacts the value we place on artists and how all of this connects to money. This was one of those conversations where we wished we weren't on Zoom in different parts of the world, but rather in the same room drinking wine and sharing war stories. And in fact, the conversation continued long after I stopped recording and something that we want to do again and delve deeper into more industry and intellectual property questions. Oftentimes during the discussion, I kept replaying the duet by Annie Lennox and Aretha Franklin, sisters are doing it for themselves. Quick editorial thing before we start. You'll hear me reference Rennie Edulodge's book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. And I accidentally call it, or maybe not accidentally, Why I'm No Longer Talking to Black People About Race. Maybe because I'm all talked out. Anyway, let's get on with the show. Hi everyone, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. This is a bit of an unusual format because I have like four additional people. Normally it's just a one-on-one, -on -one, so this is really exciting. And we are talking about money. We are talking about women in the music industry. Um, so I'm really excited to talk about things that um, usually people don't like to talk about. Especially in the UK, money is still a bit of a taboo subject. And we know that in the music industry, there aren't really any sort of formalised rules about how much people should get paid, even though we do have a musicians union. So I really want to hear from you guys about what you think. So let me start by 
asking you all to introduce yourselves. I have here Alev Lenz, I have Shruti Kumar, I have Sam Campbell, and I have Honey Onile Eri. So Alev, do you want to introduce? Alev has actually been on the podcast before. She was my first guest on season one. She's kind of the reason this is still going on because she was so nice and she said yes. And I was like, oh, someone said yes. Let's keep going. So Alev, over to you. Oh, so uh, that's so nice to hear. I mean, obviously, the reason you kept going is you and your podcast is really lovely. And I'm glad we can all get together. This actually feels really nice. Um, yeah, so oh, you wanted an introduction, right? So I'm Alev Lenz, uh, singer, songwriter, composer and producer. And um, I do have a studio in London. I used to live in London as well. And then I thought I'll move for a bit. And now it turns out I've moved for longer. <laughs> and yeah. And I'm really happy to be to be back on. Thanks so much. And Shruti, tell us about who you are and where do you come from? <laughs> I'm Shruti Kumar. I am a composer, producer, songwriter, uh, conductor, radio host as well. I have a show on Dub Lab called Let's Shake On It that brings together different musicians from very different walks of life and merges their musical ideas into one track and then we talk about it so that's kind of cool um I grew up in America uh, my parents are from India I actually spent most of the last year in London which is where I met Alev and um I also had to return to the states during the pandemic in July but I miss it over there very much cool thanks so much um and honey tell us who you are hi um I'm honey um, I am a lawyer, music lawyer. Um, I started out working for record labels, many of whom don't exist anymore, like Island Records or, or as, as individual labels that are now imprints. And then moved from there to music publishing, which actually I've, I found, I have found much more interesting. I actually much prefer working with singer songwriters than I do with um, uh, performers, I think. And I now um, am head of legal at a uh, company that licenses out music to uh, digital services from the Spotify's right down the scale to the ones that you've never heard of. But I mean, so I've had a really, it's really amazing actually. I've been very lucky that I've had the, kind of the whole range from old school kind of record labels right through to publishers, right through to digital. So I've had really great breadth of, of um, experience, which has been amazing, been very lucky. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And Sam Campbell, tell us, who are you? Where do you come from? Hi there. I am Sam Campbell. I live in London. I have worked in the music industry for 27 years now, I think it is. And um, like Honey, I find uh, publishing really interesting. And that's where I kind of cut my teeth. That's where I've been kind of most of my life. After working for mainly independent um, companies I decided that I wanted to take my skills and experience and take them into smaller companies with independent artists indep um, independent um, bands and stuff as well as um, small companies who don't really know how their record labels are set up and publishing companies as well so I take my skills in there I did an MBA a few years ago just so that I could learn really tighten up on the business side so I take it to uh, those smaller companies and help them structure their, their businesses. And I do projects for artists as well. Fantastic. Um, it's, it's really interesting because I was looking at some of the figures to do with women in the music industry. And most, all of us actually are anomalies in reality. So I was having a look, the PRS, their, their latest 
um, figures, women represent only 17%. So women composers represent only 17% of their roster, even though um, there's, a, there's a, um, a website called UK Music and in their report they say women and men are almost 50-50 represented in the music industry. But the jobs that you, know, you um, Alev and Shruti and I have, we're only about 17% represented. And when it comes to women of colour or people of colour, it's also really low, 17.4, um, 17.8%. It's really, really low. So the fact that all of us, we have, I, I, you know, honey, you're of Nigerian origin. Um, you're Nigerian, not of Nigerian. You're or, Niger, you'd call yourself Nigerian, not of Nigerian origin, right? It's funny you say that because I was um, explaining, I did another talk a couple of days ago and I know that people was wondering why I'm called honey. Um, and it's just because it's the translation of my name, Oyinwale, which Oyi means honey. And so I think, and uh, depending on where I am in the world, I kind of get called different things. So I'm very much, I think, both. Like if I had to support a football team, uh, which bizarrely enough I find myself doing, it would probably be the Nigerian football team. Um, but um, I think that my manner, um, someone said to me the other day, they didn't believe I was Nigerian because I was so nice. And I was like, hmm, <laughs> I don't know how to take that exactly. But yeah, so I think I'm probably both. Nigerian and British. Right, exactly. And then Sam, you're Caribbean, Jamaican, right? Um, yes, that's right. And then Shruti, Indian. Um, Alev, you Turkish and German. Um, I guess, I, I mean, I don't... This is a subject we'll get into maybe a bit later about how people identify, you know, as people. Do you identify as a person of colour? Do you identify as black? Do you identify as Indian and American or American or both? But I think the point I'm trying to get at is the, the, the group of women here, we are all exceptions to the rule, actually. There are actually very, very few of us represented. So, um, and, you know, the purpose of this podcast, I really, it's called Holding Up the Ladder, Holding Up the Ladder. Um, it started because I really, I, I've been, you know, working self-employed as a, you know, full-time musician, probably for about eight years, but um, you know, solely for myself. And there are so many things that I wish I'd known that I've kind of just had to learn as I go along. And I really wanted to create a space where in order for arts to progress, um, if you know some information that would help someone along, so they're not having to learn the same information again and again and again, I wanted to create a space where we could help each other. And I find that when it comes to money, I mean, the amount of times I did things for free when I really shouldn't have done them for free. <laughs> like I really shouldn't. And you learn after the fact, you're like, why did I do this for free? Or you ask for, you know, you get paid something and you're like, why is this so low? And you don't know how to sort of stand in your corner and say, actually, I'm not gonna do this or I should get paid more. So I really wanna talk about those things. And perhaps I'll start um, almost backwards and ask each, throw out to each of you, you know, what's the one thing you want people to walk away with by the end of this conversation. Go, Sam. Yeah, can I go? I was so excited about doing this. You know, you get asked to kind of speak at various things and sometimes it's all a bit pedestrian, but this is really, really important. One of the things that really bugs me is musicians not having the information or not knowing the information which is out there and which they should have and I find that the wider industry tends a lot of the time to kind of keep that information to themselves or kind of make it really arcane or esoteric so that they can't understand and so it's a kind of like job creation for ourselves so whenever I work with artists I, I remember telling one artist this 
bless him, I was like, he was like, I, I really don't want to do this. I want you to take care of it for me so I can get on with creating. And I said, that's fine. I will do it. I will do your business side, but you are going to learn what I'm doing. Otherwise, you've just kind of relinquished everything to me instead of delegating. And it's really, really important that people, uh, musicians understand basic terms. They understand how much they can do for themselves so that when I come on board, they know that I'm helping them and not just kind of taking over. So, yeah, it's it's something I'm really passionate about and I'll probably just keep interrupting all the time, but it's, it's really important. Yeah. That's fantastic. Honey, what did you want to say? Um, well, I was just going to just underline what Sam said. I mean, you know, when I obviously most of my work is dealing with other lawyers and it's always so often amazing to me that, you know, from even at the very biggest deals that I don't ever get to speak to the artist or the, or the songwriter, which, you know, I don't necessarily want to. and They don't need to speak to me. And frankly, it's, it's you know, I have no, no ego about that. But the very, there is a really, a really a sense that, you know, knowing your business means you're going to somehow be less creative. And if there's anything anyone's going to, I would like anyone to take away from this is like, you know, having the knowledge of how your money is earned and what it means and where it comes from and where it goes and how it gets to you and what goes out does not in any way detract, you know, from your ability to be a, a, a creative human being. And it doesn't make you any less important as a creator to also have a handle on the business side. And exactly as, as, as Sam said, I think that's such a, just perfect phrase, you know, delegate, don't relinquish, you know, it, and, and, and I do think that, you know, particularly for creatives, there's often a sense that, oh, I don't want to bother my head about that. It's like, well, no, bother your head about it, at least enough so that you can pick, because throughout my time, whether it was at a record label, whether it was at a, at a publisher, it happened over and over and over again, that writers and, and artists would end up having to come back for you know, top ups on their advances or top, you know, early payment of this because they hadn't panned for the tax man or they hadn't done this, they hadn't done that. I'm like, this can't be news to you. You are a business person as a creator and don't be afraid to be a business person. It's kind of what I would hope people will take away from this. That's really good. That's fantastic. Shruti, you go for it. Well, along those lines of not being afraid, I think that's sort of the biggest one, um, even from the creative side. I think that um, what I've noticed um, is not so much a knowledge gap as much as like a confidence gap uh, in the studio. I think there are a lot of women, especially from my perspective here in the States, um, that will walk into a studio and feel certainly intimidated to call themselves a producer or an engineer, or if they're a singer or a player, kind of similarly to knowing the business, they think if they know more about the tech, they're less of an artist or less of a creator. But if you can do all of that, which everyone can and everyone's learning on the job, then you are more autonomous in your work and you can control your income more. If you can learn to record yourself and engineer yourself, then your income will increase tenfold and you won't have to rely on others to help you finish your product, essentially. So I think um, it sounds very simple, but the first step really is to just call yourself what you are um, and not be afraid to assume multiple hats. A lot of people told me growing up, why are you a producer and an engineer and a composer and all this, like pick one, stay in your lane. And I'm like, now it is, it's all the same. And you have to kind of know everything or at least want to know everything um, if you want to control your career a bit more. Um, there's so much that everyone else has talked about that is a little bit different in the state. So once we go through everybody, I want to ask questions and share a little bit about that too. But yeah, no, please. Yeah. That would be, that would be great. So yeah. So remember that, but I, I, I want to go to Alev and just see what, um, what you think about that. 
Um, there is that question, like what you want people to walk away with is so, there's so many, like there's so many things that I wish um, everyone would just know in their hearts and just, <laughs> so it's a, it can be a really long answer. So one thing definitely is like Shruti says as well, confidence, to just be confident that what you are doing and what you know you are doing, you know, you have a feeling about what you know, but then you're kind of like, but they told me I don't know this. So you sort of stop knowing things that you actually knew. So um, that confidence I think is, is especially important, especially as, as a woman, that's at least what I, I learned going through this long career um, of like in the beginning, just kind of being like, okay, I'm, I guess I'm not supposed to know this or like this is maybe, this is probably not where I should be commenting. I kind of feel like I know it better because I really read the contract. <laughs> so that kind of um, what you know, you know. So so be be sure about that because you probably do. And yeah, that has probably a lot to do with, um, this, is, this is obviously a bigger topic, but to just kind of um, uncouple yourself or not buy into I call it a capitalist lie because <laughs> there's a lot um, in there that, um, you know, the ways that you can make money or what you should be doing or shouldn't be doing has a lot to do with, you know, how we're, how people with money will always produce and make more money and we need people to have less money. So we need people to stay in their lane because otherwise the whole system doesn't work. Again, this is <laughs> a massive topic, but sort of that's, yeah, that's maybe one of them. That that's fantastic, um, yeah. I've got I've got so many questions, but let's go back to Shruti, and tell us a little bit about because you wanted to talk about the U.S. and I know you were saying that um, in the U.S. the numbers in terms of women doing the jobs that we do is even lower. So speak into a little speak a little bit into that, and then yeah, just go ahead and ask us what you wanted to ask us from the U.K. Okay, um, well. <laughs> I'm not sure why anything is the way it is for sure, but having come back from London during this pandemic, um, certain realities are just very obvious. First of all, we don't have, um, people may argue with me on this, but we don't have a functioning comprehensive union for us. Uh, composers and producers certainly don't. Players, we can join the players union, but there's so many issues with joining the union here. Uh, there is no there is no functioning protection for us like that. So a lot of us have to actually learn as much of the business as possible, um, at least from our point of view in LA where I am right now. Um, we all, it's very normal for us to learn the business side too. And I also actually studied economics in school and all that. And really pleased my parents when I said I wanted to be a musician instead. But uh, but anyway, um, the numbers are much lower. So even your 17% is like shocking to us. <laughs> uh, I think ours, I mean, at least in the film scoring world, our number is like around 2% um, of uh, recorded, hired, uh, working composers, right? So, I mean, there's plenty of female composers, but I mean, the people who are earning from, from music. Um, producers is something also like 2%. Um, it's very crazy. Uh, I think at one point it was under 1% when I first moved to LA. So these things, you know, it's a very inch by inch, if at all an inch climb. I don't know what's going on there. Um, I do think also because uh, we don't have as much of an arts and culture regard from our government and and don't have those protections um 
there's a lot less transparency from our higher ups in the business side. Um, and I don't know. I don't think I'm not pointing fingers at anybody because I don't I just think it's the way it's set up. Everyone's sort of in their own lane, as uh, you guys were saying earlier. Sometimes you don't even interact with the artists or the songwriters or producers. And I think even in our attempts now to follow paper trails of payment um, to advocate for ourselves, especially now during the pandemic, we're realizing uh, for touring musicians, for songwriters, for producers, for all of us, it's very impossible actually to have find a consistent paper trail of our payment um, for any kind of gig. It's different across so many different kinds of gigs, depending on what medium, what television network, all this stuff, right? Um, so we are trying to demand more transparency in that way. And it's also showing us that within the creative sphere, we know so little about what each other is making, you know, what we're making. So songwriters might say, producers, why aren't you leveling the playing field by sharing some of your fee with us? And producers might be like, well, we're not actually making what you think we're making. We are trying to share our fee with you, but it's just going to look like a token of good faith because it really barely covers my own income. So I'm going to share with you, but it's just like a cute sum of money. We're not, you know, so really when you start talking more and more like that, then you realize that there has to be some larger reckoning here. So I think in the States, uh, musicians are now slowly starting to come together, realizing how dire our situation was prior to the pandemic um, that has made us so reliant on aid from companies uh, when in fact we should have been better supported by wherever the money's coming from, all the places the money's coming from, the multiple places the money's coming from, so that we weren't so stranded right now and fighting this way. So I think, um, long story short, I do think this the differences between the UK and Germany and here in the States uh, is just that we actually just don't have arts and culture represented in our government the way that you guys too do and don't have funding from there. So that even culturally trickles down to how artists are even perceived in society. So even our most progressive um, politicians will think that, you know, art artist problems are elite problems and stuff like that, you know. So anyway, I, I, I think the culture is different here um, and the transparency is less here. And of course, I, I do think that the gender and race gaps, at least from what I can observe from my experience, both in the UK and here are a little a little bit, a lot bit more pronounced here. And while we might be louder about it and talk about it a lot more, um, I'm not sure there's as much productive action happening to rectify the problems. It's my two cents and <laughs> anyone listening may come at me, but that's my, my perspective. That's really interesting. Does anyone want to respond to that? Perhaps Honey or Sam or... You know, I, I think I have to, I don't know that anyone would, apart from me, the numbers, obviously, I don't know much about, but I do think the perception of, um, of the arts as an intrinsically valuable thing and an intrinsically valuable commodity is different here um, than it is um, in, in, in the US. I suppose the difference in the US, you have a kind of wider range, like, you know, you can be a successful gospel artist in the US and be extremely well off and you know from what I can see but you couldn't be really have necessarily had that kind of success here um but I and, I and I think that you know it is a function of and I put my hand up as as you know the as as a lawyer it is a function of the even the agreements you know that people sign up to that they are not easy to understand and um 
partly because you know this is a complex field but also because just that's how we are taught to draft and explain and whatever and I think that um it is not as great surprise to me that even people who've been doing been in the business for a very long time still don't know a lot of you know where their money comes from or where their money goes to or what this means or what that means if they sign this and I sort of have sometimes a frustration I'm like did you just never ask this question you fool <laughs> which obviously not what I say I sort of say oh we sit down let's have a little chat um but you know there, there's I think that you know as women as as people anyway we need to take some responsibility for our own knowledge and I realize you know as a lawyer I'm in a very privileged position insofar as at some point you are going to earn what you're going to earn because you've been qualified for however long. And so, and I, and, and I think, I can't remember whether it was you or, or Sam that mentioned that there's no structure, at least for my job, there is a structure. Mm. And at some point, so I have never really had to sort of struggle in principle of it, of getting paid more. But I think, you know, knowledge, it's such a cliche, but knowledge is power. Mm. And, and if you don't understand some of the business, I don't really know how you can make the most of the business. Mm really. So that's all I would say. Broadly, it's a long way of saying I agree. Does anyone else want to respond to that? Can I, can I just jump in? I was, I'm just going to kind of, you know, segue and join in what Shruti and Honey were just saying as well. Just some, a point that you were talking about, Shruti, before about the arts not being um, that valued over in the US. I, I may not have like quite a handle on it, conversation going on over here at the moment because of like the fellow schemes and COVID and you know everything that's happened and so many artists are just you know astounded at the government's reaction to the whole um you know the the whole arts and culture sector uh, sector so we've got this um, government department called the department of culture media and sports i think it is and there's a meme going around where people have crossed out the kind of like arts and media and says you know it's just about sports because sports is where they see the money coming in and a lot of them they you know have a vested interest they're really interested in sports and stuff whereas over here for example uh, an organization like the arts council who ostensibly is supposed to invest in the arts you know throughout England or the Arts Council England are supposed to invest in the arts throughout England but it turns out that most of their money goes to classical and opera which you know when the organization started that might have been like the appropriate thing to do but now the musical landscape is so diverse that they should be kind of filtering money into there so an org a national organization like that are not really supporting the arts over here in the way that they should do, or music, at least from a musical perspective. And the government are just not, you know, there was this thing, I don't know if you've heard about over here, and perhaps this is not the place to get too political, so I'll, I'll try not to do that. But um, there was this kind of thing about uh, our, our chancellor saying that, you know, artists should retrain. And so, you know, every single musician was just like, are you mad? Do you know how long it took us to kind of become expert in, in our, um, in our instrumentation you complete person you know I can't even say but <laughs> the point is is that it may seem as though I mean it's awful if the US doesn't even have our standard of recognition for the arts but the recognition for the arts over here is not that great in my opinion. Uh, um, Alev I want you to speak into that because I know you have very strong opinions about this stuff. I just have so many opinions. Um, well, I was just thinking about what what I could um, say um, 
what qualified information I could give about the situation in Germany, having really just come back and not having been here for about nine years now. But I would say it is it is similarly that everyone is really now seeing like, oh, you don't really think we are um, a viable part of society. You don't really actually care. You, you think there'll be another round of artists if we all you know, crash and die. <laughs> you're, you're like, oh, okay, you know, it'll be fine. Someone else makes music, right? We'll, we'll just get some other people in. So I think that's a general um, issue everywhere where right now it is a problem to, you know, you get some government help, but then you can only use that towards um, uh, office rent. And then like, I don't have an office. Most people don't have, musicians don't have an office. Like, where are you going to put that money. I mean, it's good you have it, but then you have to probably pay back. Um, a thing I've seen um, happening now is, um, I don't wanna move too far away from the topic, but it, it, it is about money and about um, where we stand at art, uh, as artists, is that now um, Germany is, at least in Germany, and I think in Europe right now, it's like you do two shows for the price of one, or actually most of the times lower. So you, because venues and promoters cannot book out the places at full capacity, they will do two shows where they can run, you know, I spoke to a friend who is also um, a concert promoter. So I spoke to both sides, um, performers, conductors, and also um, promoters and bookers. And so they cannot actually, with two concerts, they, they can't even fill they can't even sell the seats they would usually sell. So what they do is ask artists to play two shows with a break, um, shorter shows, but you still are there longer. You're still doing two shows. You're going on stage and off stage and you are exposed to the audience. So I am. that is something that I have been milling over and thinking and talking um, to my um, colleagues about what that actually means and I've been talking to my mother who's an actor and who has um, you know money has always been an issue getting paid um, the right amount and having your value seen and I think this is again like in film you know now they'll cut budgets and be like well can we you know save on music but the same goes for live if you if if there is no understanding of if you go on stage twice, that is more work. It's not like, I'm just here, I'm gonna just do what I do. Of course, also understanding the other side, you know, everyone's losing money right now. They might not even be able to do any concert, but then there's places that are government funded. So they shouldn't be asking that. They should not, they should not be asking, I'm, I'll pay you your price, please play two shows because of Corona. They'd be like, we'll add like a Corona bonus like I, I even appreciate, like my doctor charges a pound more because of uh, hygiene measures. Mm. Just add like a little, so there's a, there is an issue I think of like appreciation for what um, the arts actually mean and what the arts mean in who gets to make it. Cause right now what I'm also seeing is the people who can write this pandemic out and then still make art that's a very, um, that is a voice, it's a valid voice, but it's really just one of people who just had enough money in the bank. So we're gonna lose the already underrepresented 
um, voices in art, which is what art is. It tells us about who we are as people. I don't actually want to just have one, like, I don't want to have just one version of music. <laughs> like, I, we need to hear everybody's story to, to be fully human. So it's quite complex. <laughs> It is, and it's so interesting because I was actually talking to, a, 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 interviewing another musician earlier last week, and uh, you know, what, a lot of what we're talking about is value and how you, you know, how do you determine how much value something is, and if we if we live in a capitalist society where you we place the evidence of value is how much monetary value we attribute to it, um, you know, well we can see discrepancies. Ev discrepancies rather everywhere and so this what we're seeing now is where what value has been placed upon what um but you know we know that in societies in sort of totalitarian regimes they would destroy art you know and i think you know with re in relation to that i'd really like to talk about you know knowing how much to charge and knowing how to advocate for yourself and knowing how to yeah, just knowing how much to charge. And Shruti, I'd love you to sort of kick us off with that. <laughs> and knowing our, you know, if we're talking about value in, and, you know, we, we have the compounded issue of COVID now, but this was an issue before it. I think what COVID do has done is just expose the problem. It's like the rug has been lifted and all the, all the ants are coming out from under the carpet. So Shruti, do you want to talk about value and knowing how much to charge? Yeah, now I'm just thinking of ants coming out of the carpet. <laughs> um, this is interesting. So I have a lot that I kind of want to say about wages, especially as a creative freelance uh, musician. Because um, that's been a long journey for me. I've been in L.A. almost 10 years and navigating how much I get paid for uh, per project, uh, depending on whether I'm working on a film or producing a record, it changes dramatically obviously depends on where the budget is coming from for the project what type of film or record is it on a label is it not on a label um, even so um, the way that it was presented to me I mean I'm not gonna name names but I started off working as an intern uh, name names name names do it do. Uh, <laughs> no I'm joking no 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 you need to one. work no no don't take my advice well, this is part of the problem, by the way, uh, in the States. Everyone's a little bit afraid to speak because we still have to get hired. It is COVID and I can't shoot all of my chances of working right now. And I'm talking quite a bit these days because I'm home all the time. So anyway, all that aside, um, I started off as an intern and an assistant um, at a bigger studio, at a couple of big studios um, where the hours were insane and we got less than minimum wage. But that's just a normal Hollywood thing. I mean, not just in music. I think anyone who works for a network, um, a big network or anything, you, you kind of have this idea. And I'm, like, I'm thinking, like, I have a master's degree and I moved in, I'm old and I moved and I'm making, I'm working like insane hours for no money. Um, so obviously I had to have other jobs all the time too. Um, a lot of people don't. Um, and that's another problem with underpaid internships, I think, is it, if you don't have the bandwidth to either get more work or you don't already have money in the bank, like Olive was saying, then um, you're already nixed at that level, right? Um, but then over time, like I stayed my course there. I like graduated to an assistantship. I went freelance. I was able to like take out a loan for a studio. All these things. It was like a big financial choice early on, though, that I had to start saving and like curating money to go into my gear and my setup when I chose that's the path I wanted to go I wanted to be working in film music and in production um 
but it was an early choice. I was super young and I knew then that like, you know, I had to give up on a lot of other things and really financially plan in that way, which a lot of people don't talk about. Everybody sort of thinks one day you snap your fingers and all this magical studio stuff appears doesn't happen and it shouldn't be this way. But it is you have to like very much commit to it early on. Then more the more I was freelance, though, um, and still sometimes the bigger gigs that look better on my resume and that I get a lot of press for are, in fact, the gigs that pay me the least. Um, so there's still that exchange of exposure over dollar. So some of my like some things no one's ever heard of have paid me quite well, actually. <laughs> um, so, you know, you're told, OK, stop saying yes to things that don't pay you enough. But for me, all of those things that didn't pay me enough have actually gotten me to a point where anyone knows who I am. Um, and, and it did help me get hired for further stuff. It's interesting, though, because producing records, unlike film, you know, there's more infrastructure for film and live shows and conducting and all that. But records seem like this nebulous world. I mean, publishing is more understandable. But as a producer, as a woman producer, first of all, when I first started calling myself a producer, I got calls from every female artist in Los Angeles in the indie scene because they they didn't know that there were other there were women producers. And I'm like, wait a second, all of you guys must also be producers. But sure, I'll help you with your record, you know. But the amount of free labor that producing a record is, I have found, is um, insane. And I've gotten in so many fights with managers of artists about this, labels, because there is this, people don't know actually the hours and time that go into, it's not just like sitting in a room with an artist and telling them what to do um, at all. There's hours of editing and programming and recording and mixing and all these things and Often that's all used for the budget of creating the record. So whatever's left over for me is very little. Um, so I had to do a lot of free work like that um, to even get to the point of credibility where people would offer me a per song fee in addition to my publishing. And for me, you know, we can talk about streaming all day at some point. But and I'm so curious to hear actually what everyone thinks about streaming oh, from no. the other side. But that's the but. <laughs> But for me, streaming, I don't much care about unless it's like trailer music or whatever. So I want my upfront song fee. So I think it's hilarious. Reference like, well, you have 50% of the publishing. I'm like, yeah, of what, though? I want money now for all this time I'm putting into the record. Um, so finally, like five years in or something to producing records-ish, I started getting a fee that I thought was good. And I was approached by a manager who wanted to represent me um, for producing. And he was like, what's your rate for a song? And I told him what my rate was at that time, which was something like a thousand a song plus publishing, which I was like, wow, I worked so hard to get a thousand a song plus publishing. And he was like, oh, our average producer gets seven grand a song. And I'm like, doing what? First of all, that was just, it blew my mind when I was at this meeting. I was suddenly felt embarrassed because I should have said something bigger to this manager who's supposed to be helping me. And then he says this number 7,000 and I'm like, I'm I'm sorry, I've never even heard of these producers that are making 7000 a song. So what the heck? Honestly, like that meeting, I'll never forget it. Um, if that person listens to this, he'll know who he is. Um, and it's not his fault. He's mad, but I was just sort of like, how have I gone this long? And it's this chicken or egg problem. And I think it really affects women a lot more because, um, because women entered the game, so to speak, uh, visibly a little bit later. So the numbers are against us anyway. But... It's credits and fee, right? Like the more credits we have, the higher our rate is. And the businesses, like the labels and the production companies are so risk averse that, you know, it just takes, they're just like, somebody has to take a chance on you. I'm like, that's great. So maybe one day, like someone will hire me instead of Hans Zimmer, right? Maybe. And then 
I'll score my big blockbuster and then hire all women to help me. Right. But no, it's just, but it's crazy because that takes an incredible amount of risk taking on a part of like a Warner Brothers or a, you know, um, Paramount or anyone who's making the film. So if that, if they're not taking those risks and we're still chugging away for credits to get our fee, then this seems like a forever gap, you know, from my, where I stand. So while I know we're supposed to say no to lots of gigs, for me, I, have, I still sometimes do say yes to the ones that are very impressive if they don't pay me enough. I've started saying no to more, you know. I, I, I talk about this a lot more, and I will argue with people for more money, but it is exhausting. It ta- it's, it's like another entire job, right? And then also you're managing the artist you're producing too, sort of giving them all the advice, teaching them about publishing, all this, and it's... Anyway, I could talk about this forever, but any comments welcome on any of this. Who wants to go? Alev, do you want to? Oh, Camp, Sam, go for it. Go for it. Yeah, I mean, that was amazing kind of hearing you fight for exactly what you think you're worth is just, it's really heartening um, to hear, you know, as your courage built as you kind of went along. So I've got a kind of similar feeling. I came from, um, you know, a paid background, being in a job, salary job, and then I went to um, freelancing working for myself and it's just like okay how much do you charge what do you charge and at first I was a bit like oh I don't want to say too much and you know am I worth it and I, I did the whole kind of usual you know type of thing and I remember there was this pivotal moment so many anyone who will listen to me has heard this story but I'll tell it again I remember one day I'd done a lot of work for various people given a lot of advice had a lot of can I just pick your brains moment uh, and um I opened my fridge one day and there was there was just all that was in there was like a jar of artichokes. There was no other food in the house. And I, you know, I'd have ordered a takeaway or something, but there was literally, you know, I remember at the time, and this wasn't that long ago, I couldn't afford my groceries. And I just thought, I'm a grown woman. What are you doing? You literally, when people say you have to be hungry, you literally have to hear your belly rumbling to go why have I not charged you for, you know, for all of the information that you're asking for? So I devised, I don't know if we'll come on to this later about, you know, the strategy that I devised as to how to structure my fees. Um, but I did that. But one thing that I wanted to, to kind of point to, just from what Shruti was saying as well, is the idea of value in music. And I think it's up to artists and, you know, all of us working in the industry to help artists to value and producers and, you know, whoever creates music to value their music. So we get a lot of people, especially when they're coming to independent companies, asking to use music for free, yeah, in their films. And my thing is, there is a baseline, yeah, even if this music has never been licensed before and you've never heard of the artist before, yeah, I will charge you a minimum of £50, just so that there is some value on some monetary value on that piece of music. Now, Honey knows the, this story, so Honey, just kind of like bear with me, but do you remember like KKR came in and they were kind of like working at BMG and it was all kind of very, uh, very weird. And I've always kind of thought KKR with this um, venture capital company, um, I don't think it's libelous for me to mention them because they're so much bigger than me, so they're probably not gonna care, but they're this massive venture capital company, you know, billionaires, a lot of them, and they, you know, had a stake in BMG, a music publishing company. You know, why would they do that? Uh, venture capital companies only exist to make money. Yeah. 
So I always use that as an example when I say to musicians, these people don't know anything about music. So what is it that drew them? What is it that they wanted from a music company? And what they wanted was intellectual property because intellectual property is a way of wealth creation. It's a way of wealth generation. So they know from that, from the ideas that come from inside of you, somebody can make money out of that. So why shouldn't that person be you? You know, I'm just like, you have to put a value on the fact that you've got the talent to create this. You've also got to put a value on um, time and opportunity as well. And Shruti just mentioned how she made a decision, you know, to invest in equipment, to invest her time, you know, after she did her economics degree. I love that story as well. You know, telling your parents you could be a musician, sort of, you know, an economist, you know, we've all kind of, you know, had those stories and, you know, it's, it's great, but there, there is a value to that because the time that you spent training, you could have gone out and got a nine to five, but you deferred that payment until later. So you're getting paid now for the opportunities that you kind of passed by then in terms of monetary value. So that's another reason, you know, musicians, you have to put a value on it. Put a value based almost on what you could have made during that time. If you started when you were 18 and you, you know, started working you know you trained and got so good at your craft and didn't start working till you were 25 or 30 or whatever it is yeah there's a whole kind of time span that you can kind of put some kind of value on that and don't undervalue yourself as well the music industry is so unregulated and so completely competitive as well you know they can pay you basically peanuts um really silly story i was working at one independent label and i was that that person in the 90s who went around with those kind of versace shades i'm really sorry but i did yeah and the nephew of the owner of the company came in and just went where are you going in those fake versaces because my uncle would never pay you enough to be able to afford a real pair of versaces right and that's when i kind of thought yeah I'm not I really am this feeling I have inside that I'm not being paid enough but I was young and it's my first job it's really true and I just went in my fought every year for a pay rise and a pay rise and a pay rise um until I got one so you do kind of have to fight for it and I, I would say don't be afraid of fighting for it because what you're doing um it, it does have a real real value and I think it is really important about knowing your worth I know it's like a very quite an existential question but it um but it really is true because I know that the someone actually my accountant helped me with this because I was talking about how much to charge for something and he was like how long have you been playing the piano and I was like since I was six if you start to think about how long you've been doing something you're like I've had 30 years I have 30 years experience in what I'm doing so I'm not charging you for this within say for example like Shruti you're, you're composing a piece of music within that composition you have all the years of experience that you are putting into that song so I have had like for whatever reason I've done quite a few like podcast um music for podcasts and in theory it's like what 20 30 seconds right so someone's thinking I am paying you because it's also how people um conceptualize something 
So in their head, they're like, I am paying Matsy for 30 seconds of music. Well, 30 seconds, it will take her 30 seconds to write 30 seconds of music. So how about 50 quid? And I've had to go, wait a second, no, you're not paying me for 30 seconds of music. You are paying me for my 30 years of experience. And it doesn't take me 30 seconds to write that piece of music. And when, when I realised that, it changed how much I charge for things. So I, like you were saying, Sam, I have a baseline. And I have like, okay, well, I know that if I'm going to write 30 seconds of music, and, and you know, for example, I did Renny Edu Lodge's podcast, and that was all about, um, you know, why I'm no longer talking to black people about race. I spent time doing research to put for a minute's worth of music because I had to think about you know, the context of what I was writing. I didn't just sit down and play something, but it's taken me a lot of time to say, okay, here's my baseline. I'm not gonna charge, um, I'm not gonna accept less than this. And I've lost work as a result. And I had the, should I have done that? Oh my God, I'm, yeah, you know, and all the, uh, uh. But I had to, I had to come to a stage where I, I used the analogy, I was saying this to a friend yesterday. If you go into a shop and you were going into, I don't know, let's say you're going to Selfridges or some nice fancy shop in LA. I don't know any fancy shops in LA. And in the shop, that item of clothing is worth 150 quid. And it's the, there's a price marked on that piece of clothing. I don't walk in and go, look, in my estimation, it might say 150 pounds, but I think it should only cost 10 pounds. So I'm going to give you 10 pounds. You have to pay what's on the, on the tag, right? And I'm really learning that if I, and in, if I can't pay the 150 pounds for that piece of clothing, I don't get to take it. I have to leave it on the hanger. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But it's, it's been such a journey and you have to have people that you can um, sort of bounce off. So I know Honey has like been my lawyer for like ages. I'm like, Lord, Honey, please, can you look at this, please? <laughs> And I, I, I know it's a pleasure. I know you're you're so kind, but I'm always like that thing Sam said you about um, relinquish. Don't de don't uh, delegate. Don't relinquish. Sometimes I'm like oh, I'm just gonna relinquish. Give it to Honey, and then <laughs> oh my god, I want to read this. I really don't want to read this. Please, can you tell me what to do? So all I have to do is sign it. But you know, I have people in my life that will ask me the quite kind of questions that will cause me to have to rethink, well, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this, you know? So- If I could just add something, on um, my sort of macro experience of this when I was freelancing, I didn't last for very long because I'm, I can't, I realize I can't hustle. And I'm, I'm, whether it's a sort of a mix of arrogance and a sort of weird sort of the, the British diffidence and the Nigerian arrogance of, you know, <laughs> what I've got to ask you and like, I'm really sorry, do you have to pay me? You know, it's just got very confused in my head. Um, and, um, but the one thing that I, and it's such a cliche, but it really is true. If you don't value yourself, no one else will. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, and this is just so, I so want to name names. Fortunately, I won't, because I can't remember the name of the whatever. But the one time I ever got stiffed on, on, on my fee, which was, which was minuscule, actually, with hindsight, considering the work I did at the beginning when, you know, like everyone else does, you give away stuff for free. And, you know, and, I, and I'm very conscious as, uh, you know, I used to, uh, I, I, music has all has been the one thing that has been in my life literally there's not a minute that music is not playing in my head and it's part of my all the cliches mm -hmm. um so but i you know but i and, and i used to write and do whatever but I, but I don't think of myself as a creative person so i'm, I'm forever apologizing like and i'm really sorry that you have to pay me because you know you're the good guys and if it wasn't for you but you know at some point you're like actually i have a role in this process but anyway the one time that i was 
not paid my fee was the only person I ever worked for free for. I did some free work and then went on to do some, some, some paid work. And in my year and a half or two years or however many years it was a freelance, the only person who ever screwed me over on the fee and it was and I and, and it was it fortunately it was small enough that it didn't make it, it it pissed me off and I have acres of emails and I wish I could remember the name of the um service the only comfort is they're no longer in business um <laughs> but um it was it was but it's so true because if you go out and say well you know whatever you think is okay broad you kind of think well if I'm nice then they'll be nice to me well mostly most time they won't be and there is a sense that if you can't value yourself, and like Sam, exactly as Sam said, even if it's 50 pounds, just get it in your head that this is worth something. Because if if you don't think you're worth something, then the person that you're giving this work to at some level, and I, and I used to have this thing, because I'm really, I'm such, I'm so disorganized, I'm always late. And so whenever I make appointments, I'm, I'm like, look, whatever works for you. And I always do that. And there was a period when I was, there was a particular meeting I used to have and they were always late and they'd not show up. And they would, you know, it's just, and, and I kind of thought, well, I'm kind of, it's central London and I can have a wander around the shops and whatever. And at some point I was like, hold on a second. I don't think anyone else is, they do, they're not doing this to anyone else. And the more flexible I am, the more they're taking the piss. And eventually one day I sort of said, oh, no, actually I can't make it. And there was this kind of shock and I was like, mm, this is the beginning. And of course they're like, oh yeah, sorry, we'll do it another time. I was like, oh, right. I showed them that, you know, it is about valuing yourself and putting yourself first financially, mm-hmm. which I think is very hard. Women are just, we're just not very good at doing that. And I'm not quite sure why. I mean, I'm really interested in what everyone else thinks is the where that comes from this kind of diffidence as to payment and and and, and value and worth mm-hmm. you know because i'm sure all of us can point to parents who have held us up and built us up and and every day told us that we are everything but somewhere it happens that we start being sorry for getting paid and for getting paid as much as the men or and I, I, I'm really interested to know where that comes from. I don't know where it comes from in me, but it's something I definitely have felt over my career. I, I have strong opinions on that. It definitely comes from, I think it 100% comes from imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy, which is my favorite um, bell hooks quote, because it just is all that needs to be said. And I think it's, also, when I talk to my friends about like, oh my God, why haven't I done this? And why it's really hard to ask for money or they screwed me over or this happened. I'm like, it's, it's okay, it shouldn't happen. But it's also just simply thousands of years of treating you a second-class citizen. And, and I think that it is just, your, your pa- even if both of your parents and your grandparents were supportive, especially for women, and if you're getting paid and if you're getting power in that sense, because unfortunately, we are still in a society where money equals power. I hope that will change. Um, that that is not wanted. So that will be, and that that's within our heads as well. It's like I shouldn't, you know. It's doesn't suit me. Doesn't you know? There's a different. So there's there's a lot um, in there. Yeah, probably again too much, too much to open now. But but yeah. It definitely is a is a worldwide issue. We might we might be. Over, I mean, I think we're we're on we're on a good path. It, it's um, 
it's definitely and and i think that's also something what i really like about holding up the ladder is like you said in the beginning to not having to learn over and over again i think that is one of the most dangerous tools of keeping women um and especially black women and women of color in where they are is to pretend that the frustration you're feeling is your individual problem the things you're learning and having to fight against is your it's just happening to you no one ever taught like nothing ever happened before but actually we have this line of women like when i like in these days especially when i felt really shit i just was trying to you know feel the spirit of audrey lord with me because there have been countless women who have been fighting what we're fighting for who have been frustrated with, with what we're frustrated who have been um saying like why am i not being recognized why am i not being paid why am i being overlooked why am i not in the history books you know i mean obviously no one's asking that when they're dead but you know that's you know why is there no no representation of me this isn't the we're made believe that this is a current issue this happens to me right now and oh my god i'm alone and this fight is really hard but it is it goes back and we have you all have my back i have your back and we have thousands of women who have our back throughout throughout this entire um situation we call life <laughs> um so i think that's also something that i when i sort of realized it i was so happy that i noticed that that is a tactic to make you think you're alone with this problem your anger is sort of your individual thing but once you've noticed oh my my friends feeling that my friends friends feeling that my mom felt that my mom's mom felt that um and there's also countless of literature actually no one in school obviously has given me they've they've give i mean the books i read in school were not so useful to me they just told me that men found everything and anything ever i mean that's my my school um and i think the curriculum in in a lot of countries so that is also something i think is really important to know in music as a woman what you're feeling is true and you're it's not an individual problem it's a collective issue we're working on and a lot of women and men when their allies have been working on with us um sorry that was long <laughs> sam wrote in the comments preach <laughs> oh yeah preach. <laughs> Um, I, I had to jump in. I noticed that, you know, even in our conversations, we were kind of like, oh, sorry for, sorry for taking too long. I think, Anna, if out of all of us, you probably spoke for the shortest period. And yeah, you were like, you know, and that's what we do. That's, that's the conditioning. Why I wanted to jump in, I actually have goose pimples because this chat just got real when you mentioned um, imperialism and the imperialist mind state. And that's exactly, I've been kind of like thinking about that a lot recently. And what really makes me laugh, I think one of the reasons why I wanted to go freelance as well is because I, I found there was like this cultural schism between who I really am and, you know, the kind of white corporate world, um, if I, you know, I'm going to call it what it is. And, you know, 
I what I found really funny is that you were saying that you know it's cultural conditioning or I you know I got from that is cultural conditioning as women you know why we don't like to ask why we don't like to put ourselves why we're always apologizing whatever and what I realized there was something about me I, I literally when I got hungry I was like you know what pay me I stopped being that polite person because it just wasn't serving me. And suddenly all the stories that my mum told me when I was growing up and I was just tuning them out because it's like, why are you telling me this story? I realised that's in my blood. My great aunties, you know, my mum was quite spoiled and quite pampered and she was never, she's quite entrepreneurial now, but she wasn't, you know, when we were growing up. But basically my great aunties all had their own businesses. One had a shop. Um, my great grandparents had a farm, so they kind of, you know, sold around animals. But one of my favorite stories was a, one of my great aunts was a contractor. She just used to, you know, if, if somebody was, um, if they were building a road in Jamaica, she would go and hire all the workers and give them jobs. She would get paid and she would, you know, da da da. And apparently one time she didn't get paid, you know, a couple of times when she didn't get paid, she would literally, she went and she threw stones at the person who wouldn't pay her or she just went and she grabbed men, yeah, and would fight them and tell them to pay her. And at the time when my mum was telling me these stories, I was just thinking, oh my God, that's so disgusting. I can't believe it. But now I'm just like, what a total badass. What, you know, why am I afraid in this day and age, this, you know, as you you know, as everyone has pointed to, as, as you, Matsy, yourself have said, this is what I've trained for. This is what I can do. You're asking me for a reason. Yeah. If you had a wealth of people to ask, you would ask them. If you had different people to ask, you would ask them. But people are asking you to do music in your way because they like the way that you do it. Yeah. So there is an intrinsic value in the fact that they've just asked you to do that as well. And I think that should help us to be less afraid about going out there and saying, you know what, this is what I'm worth. I had at one point when I started, um, you know, charging, I put a whiteboard on the on the wall because lots of people started asking me to do work and I wasn't really sure. And I said, this is the minimum I'm going to charge. And I made a little target and I put the amount in the middle and I just went no less than that. So whenever I was on the phone, I'd look at it. If somebody just called me up and said, I'd just look at it and I'd say, this is how much it is. And they go, oh, I can't afford that. And my heart would be beating. I was like, oh my God, I'm about to say no, I'm about to say it. But I've been like, no, it's okay. And it was fine. And then people who could afford me came along. I also found, I think, honey, this is something that you mentioned in your story about getting stiffed. And I've been there as well in that I had a minimum fee, but then there was an artist I quite, you know, liked. And, but he didn't want to pay the full rate and he thought, you know, he negotiated a really good rate and it was a lot less than, you know, what I would do. But I thought, you know, well, he's independent. Let me give him a chance. I found from that, the people who want to pay the least always ask you the most. I mean, he rang me almost every single day asking for every single thing. I was like, dude, seriously, this is not going to work for me. It really isn't. And then I had to let him go and he was really upset. And I was just like, how can I explain to you? Yeah, this is, you know, this is not the one. But I just wanted to jump in and say that because I think the, the the story about conditioning, we do have to get over it. And there are ways of thinking about it. it there's no harm in not being polite. There really isn't. And, and, and I'd actually like to feed into what you've all said about knowing how to self-advocate because it just feels really, really important. Shruti, do you want to respond? 
Yes, actually. I think a big one also that goes hand in hand with this conditioning is also being okay with not being liked. I think that there's this need. I think um, that's something I've been learning recently, even <laughs> uh, sticking up for myself. I just actually scored a film and my the rate was good, but then the amount of time it took me to finish the film was way more than what I would have charged. You know what I mean? The deadline kept extending and the revisions kept going and I had to put my foot down um, in a way that I never have with someone hiring me. And I was afraid it seemed unprofessional, but I was like, hey, look, for what you've paid me, um, in my opinion, this score is pretty good. I don't have time anymore to do more free revisions. If you want to pay me a little more, I can, but you're asking incredible things of me. Um, and I feel like I've already worked for what you paid me. And I'd never had a conversation like that with the director. The director did kind of get mad um, at me said, hey, you, you made an agreement. And I was like, yeah, but there was no time stipulation in this agreement. Things that we don't often do when we're working with indie directors and stuff like that, revision stipulation. So I'm just trying to be honest with you that if if you want me to continue working for you and doing good work, you have to make me feel a little bit more <laughs> taken care of here. Um, I also think going back to what Olive was saying and actually what everybody's saying, another reason, you know, besides our fear of not being liked, which is slowly going away. I can see it happening, especially during this pandemic. Women are just really stepping up in a way that it's making me very proud to see everybody's like loud anchor and um, I don't know, stances. But um, I think when you are also in an environment where you're feeling like you're a first in something, you know, which we all sort of do, like if we get an achievement, we're like, wow, I did that. And it's amazing that I'm a woman and I did that, you know, this kind of like inbuilt thing where we have to keep feeling like we're first that in in and of itself kind of, I think attaining those things so that the next generation can do it um, sometimes makes us fight less for our payment. I sometimes think that we prioritize sort of paving the way because we feel like we have to. I mean, there's this amazing Ruth Bader Ginsburg quote, I think, or story where, um, like before when she was working at the ACLU and she wanted to be doing more things and she had um, a daughter and she wasn't getting as, mu as much work and her husband said something. It's like, well, you're doing great things. You're a professor. You're teaching the next generation. She's like, why should the next generation do it? Like I wanted to do it. I wanted to change the world. I didn't want it forever. How long do we have to be the teachers for the next generation? Why don't we get to change the world, you know? Um, anyway, so I think that that constant battle of, you know, paving the way for the next instead of ourselves. You know, we're really conditioned also to just be caretakers and be liked and all this stuff, um, even professionally. So I don't know. I think that has something to do with why we apologize and don't fight as much as well. And, and I think what I love about what you said about this sort of um, why can't it be me is I really, I've really been contemplating this a lot recently, that when any success that happens to me or the people I'm around now naturally will pave the way for the people coming afterwards that's what happens and if you're always waiting for the people coming afterwards actually you know it's almost like you slow down the process for them and so I, I want to because actually what you're talking about is self-advocating so I want to talk about ways in which you guys have learned how to self-advocate to I don't know either stand your ground or speak up or Anything that has helped sort of move you forward, because I think it's it's really important, especially when it's very difficult to work out what the parameters, especially in this industry, are. I don't know who wants to to go first. I, I oh, honey, did you want to? No, no, because I was just going to fill the void. Um, because I I looked at at my notes and the answer it literally says, "How have you 
learned to self-advocate and it says the hard way. <laughs> um, it, just because it's been so um, great to listen um, to all of you and just to say to Shruti, it's exactly that thing when you, you your payment is like, you're paving the way, it's been paved. I mean, I'm driving a car now. Like, it's kind of like, okay, it's, you know, we can, and that's the thing of like this, making you think you're this isolated person who has to now fight, but people, women especially have been fighting for so long. Um, and yeah, self-advocate, it's just when you, how, I mean, have I learned it is the question. And, and I think it's just by the pain when you haven't, when you know you didn't, that is so bad that you then learn to avoid it. Like, okay, I'm gonna do this differently next time. And what I did as well is very similar to what Sam did. I've worked a long time to get to like a base rate, but I actually write it down somewhere. Like I put the number somewhere and I write it down because also my brain goes into forget mode. Someone asked me what I charge and I was like, oh my God, what was it again? <laughs> What was our studio day rate again? Um, it was, it was, uh, I'm charging money for, for, I love, I love what I do. I love what I do. So I, a big thing is I write it down and I, I reach one thing that was good and it paid well. And I, I, well, it paid what it should have, you know, maybe also learning to navigate the language around it. It paid what it should have. Well is actually, actually an exaggeration. Um, and then I was like, okay, never now lower than this. And that moves every year. Like it, it goes up a bit and I'm like, okay, now never below this. And I have to, again, write it down because I will, will forget. So that's the kind of, yeah, lo loads of notes to self. Um, I was going to say, um, actually, I think one of the things I love said is I don't know that I have actually learned to self-advocate. And, and again, I, I think I am in a fortunate position that, you know, because I have a name to what I do and there is a more of a structure to what I do. So there are certain payments and salary bands and all those kinds of things. I honestly think that if I was a, a creator who relied on other people's goodwill, I would probably be literally, I would just be like, oh no, whatever you want to pay me, don't be silly, what me? No. And it's funny because obviously, you know, when I'm, when I'm advocating for other people or in the way that I negotiate or in the way that I think I present, people are like, no, seriously, you? You know, and and I and I and and I think that um, it's in some ways it's very effective. You know, there's obviously in the negotiating. I think one of the the notes that you've made is you know how do you negotiate? Sometimes you push hard, sometimes you don't. You know, you you know your audience. But I think that the one thing that I have taught myself or trying to treat myself is to stop being so bloody grateful. You know, wow. and 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 that's a conversation I have with myself so often. My God, I'm doing a job I love in a field that I love, and you know every time I've tried to have thought about doing anything else, you know, like being a proper grown up and, and going to do something that, you know, different and like music is, is just at the heart of everything that I am. And here I am not just working in it, but, you know, helping a company that sort of is really innovative and is developer. Um, and I'm always like, well, you know, God, man, I'm getting paid quite well, my God, you know. And I look at my lawyer friends who are either getting paid vastly more, but look 30 years older than me, or the ones who are doing stuff that really matters like criminal law and whatever, and they're earning absolutely nothing. So I've spent a lot of time talking myself down from getting paid. And I think that that's one of the first things that you need to do, or I, you know, that we all need to stop being so grateful. And I think, I forget whether it was Sam or Matsy that said it, you know, if you could do, if you can do what I do, do it. 
it's really that simple. If you don't, if you feel that I'm not worth being paid because you can do it or, or you can get someone to do it cheaper, why are we even having this conversation? What you don't get to do is to get me to do what you want me to do and pay me what you would, you're not prepared to pay someone else because they're not as good as me. So it's, you know, coming back again to what you were saying, Matt, to the example of, you know, you go into a store and it's 150 quid. You don't go to them and say, listen, I know it says 150, but I'm kind of in the mood to pay 70. Um, you can't have the 150 pound top, you know? And I think that that's a process. And it's one that I, I personally am still very uncomfortable with, even as I tell, you know, people who ask me the question or who, you know, look to me for sort of, men not mentorship exactly, as I tell them exactly the right way, I don't do it. I'm still, I still find it quite nerve wracking. And, um, and I've been fortunate that often I can have like agencies doing the hard work and kind of like, I think I can probably get more. Do you think I can get more? Can I get more? Okay, no, should I? Okay, you tell, whatever, you know. Um, but I think, yeah, stop being grateful. You know, we are here because we are good at what we do. Um, we are here because people want to work with us. We are here because we provide a service and really it doesn't, you just can't have it both ways. You can't have me and not pay me. Mm -hmm. And you can't have me and not pay me what you think the job is worth because you think you can get away with less. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that that's how I've kind, I'm learning to self-advocate is just, and also, you know, take a chance because some people will say, well, actually, no, thank you. And that kind of gets you like here. <laughs> and you're like, oh my God, what have I done? Um, and, and, and I think something that I've, I've really struggled with is not taking that personally. And again, I think it comes back to what somebody said about the need to be liked and the need for approval in, on a level that I'm not even aware of because I am confident and independent or, or blah, blah, blah. But you know, somebody saying, actually, no thanks becomes a very physical personal rejection and actually understand that it isn't that and that and and it's not a reason to not try keep on trying is how i'm learning to self-advocate that's that's great it's interesting what you're saying because as everyone's talking one of the things two things have really struck me about learning how to self-advocate and the first is for me was knowing my value and i come from a background where um, my family, uh, parents are academics. I trained as a lawyer. So I'm a bit like you, Shruti. You did economics for the family. I did law for the family, <laughs> you know? So for me, music was kind of what middle-class kids did on a Saturday, you know? It was like this fun hobby that you did that was good to get into a good school, but it wasn't a career choice. So when I decided to pursue it as a job, somewhat, it took me so long to believe that my work had the same value as if, I had gone and chosen to be a lawyer and so it affected what I asked for when it came to money the jobs that I took on because I was like well it's somewhere I was like it's still a hobby it's still a hobby it's still a hobby and if you don't get paid for a hobby you know you get might get some pocket money some travel money you know what I mean but you don't get like proper pay and so the moment I was like you know what I think I'm actually good at this this is my job so I now need to be paid accordingly that was a really big thing and uh and, and, and so I'm laughing at the comments. <laughs> so she's just going, you know, definitely Indians. And Alan's like, I thought the hobby thing was just Germans. No, it's Germans, it's Indians, it's Africans. It's the whole gambit. But then the second thing I've really learned is to ask, know who to ask. And then Honey said, I'll raise you Indians and give you Nigerians. <laughs> I need to focus. <laughs> Sorry. But, um, 
you know, I've learned to ask. So I have a few people in my life that um, I've asked to be like accountable. They'll know if I'm like, should I charge this? They're like, do you know how many, how much other people are charging? And that has really, really, really made me really help me so now now sam has gone i see i see you're nigerian and raise you a jamaican <laughs> yeah so basically all sort of well it seems like everybody thinks that music is a hobby not a job like it doesn't matter where you're from so but just, sorry about so just on that point i mean I, you know i'm now head of legal i've been head of legal for a long time director of business affairs i'm head of legal of a big company i think i'm doing reasonably well and to this day it's kind of like you're never going to be a judge i'm like oh, all right I give up. And, 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 what, and what really gets my parents is like, because they were terrified I was going to become a musician. I was going to be a singer or an actress or whatever. And so I was like, well, you know, I've got, I mean, to me, the best of both worlds. My mom is, and my mum was always cool, but my dad was always like, hmm, yeah, well, you know, someday you could have been a judge. And I'm like, right, I give up. I actually give up. That's it. <laughs> my dad, to this day, still introduces me as a barrister. I'm like, I haven't done that since... I don't know, 2000, I don't even remember the last time. It's like, this is my daughter, the barrister. I'm like, uh, but yeah, no, but absolutely. So learning the value and knowing who to ask. So I have, like I say, like men, particularly, I'll ask men actually. I'd be like, how much would you charge for this? And they'll say such and such. I'm like, oh my God. Like you, Shruti, you were saying about the $1,000, $7,000. I have men in my life. I'm like, I need you to keep me accountable for this because I, it's something that I am having to learn. But I just want to uh, actually go back a little bit because Shruti raised this. Um, the thing is, what do you do when there aren't price tags for things? Because you can learn to self-advocate, but when there aren't price tags, how do you, and it's this amorphous, we know like, you know, one person can do one job and get 50 quid for it. If your name is Pharrell, you'll get $100,000 for exactly the same thing. So how do you, what do you do when there isn't a price tag? And I'd love Sam to speak into that perhaps. And yeah. let's put some, and then afterwards, let's put some price tags on things. That's a really good idea. That's that is a good idea. I mean, it's something that I'm so passionate about. I've mentioned at the top of the chat that I actually wrote a handout about this and it gives you an example about going into a shop, you know, and asking for various prices. And I think we have to think holistically about ourselves, not just thinking we're going in there and asking for a price. Um, how I charge is different from, I would say, how musicians charge. And I think you have to think about it slightly differently, but hopefully you can draw some things from, from you know, how I do it. But basically there is a, there is a model out there for, for doing this as well. And you basically start with how much do you want to earn a year? Yeah, you say, how much do I want to earn a year? How many days a week do I want to earn? Sorry, do I want to work? Yeah, and you kind of work that out. So you're not going to put 365 days. You know, if you're flossing, you'll put like two days. So you're going to have to charge a lot. And then you basically prorate what you want to earn against how many days a week you want to, to work. And then you can kind of whittle that down to your hourly rate. And so when it, or your daily rate or your weekly rate, whatever it is. And so when any, anybody comes to you for a job, you know what your hourly rate is. Um, that might work for musicians. I think with uh, musicians and producers, I think you guys have to factor in the fact that you spent a lot on equipment. For me, I, I need to, a laptop and a Wi-Fi signal. So that, you know, that's really not going to cost me anything. But that's literally what I've got. And you can literally put any figure out there. And sometimes it feels, it gives you palpitations to go, 
oh my god you know I want to earn and you kind of put x amount out there and it's like oh who do I think I am and you have to go through all of that and calm yourself down go okay if that's how much I want to earn that's how much I want to earn but actually all you're trying to do is get down to to know your hourly rate and to know your um you know your weekly rate and your daily rate but also factor in your experience when you see yourself on paper yeah it's a really funny thing to happen write out all your experience on paper write out all your skills and your qualifications and cover up the name yeah and just look at all the qualifications and skills there are and when you see that on paper you're thinking oh my gosh this person's all right I'd hire them and when you can look at it like that you suddenly think yeah if I wanted to hire someone who's got all that skills and qualification I would pay them this as well and that you know that to me is like a basic structure and that's where you start that's really good i've never thought of it like that it's almost like you're thinking backwards that's really interesting thanks for that shruti yeah i guess like that's I, it's very helpful actually because i think about these things every time i'm negotiating a new project but just like on a broader level though we all work in the music industry and the music industry is about music right so i guess what i meant about price tags is the product is a recorded piece of music, right? Or a record or a song or a concert. But let's just talk about songs. Like there isn't a stable price tag on even a song. So when we all work in an industry where like the actual music, the name of our industry doesn't have a proper value on it and it's just changing rather so quickly all the time, that makes it difficult too because now there's just different scales, right? Of music depending on what kind of project you're working on. And for us, Um, so much of working is also realizing that the people we're working for on the creative side all the way up also don't have a lot of resources. So like for us, unless we're working on a big company project or a big label project, um, and a lot of work isn't like that. A lot of people are trying to self-fund and, you know, all this now. Um, Often we do have to, I don't know if all of you agree or anybody else agrees with this, um, you have to say, well, this is my rate, but what's your budget? Like that question always happens. There's not like, what's your rate? And and then everybody, it's like a whole joke. It's like, well, what's your budget? And that goes on forever and ever and ever because, you know, on the creative side, at least, um, I don't know, it's hard. And then I think the real sad problem is that like the actual value of the music itself is just so amorphous. I don't know if anybody wants to speak to that because I think if that was somehow fixed, you know, we'd have a better foundation for what we're fighting for. I think I was just like um, laughing, uh, nervously laughing. I don't think I was saying much um, because, yes, I mean, I I was just I was just sitting here and going, kind of looking at like old, like I literally looked at old receipts and being like, what was I paid for when I'm a singer in the studio? What was I paid for when I wrote a song to picture? What was I paid when I synced a song to picture? Uh, what was I paid when I composed a score? I've just done my first one and then like a whole score. And then what was I paid in my role as a producer? And it's, I just like, like in my, I'm like, I was just looking at my um, invoices and I'm like, oh my God, it is. When you set that shoot here, I was like, it's all over the place. And then I was thinking about who helped me with it. And I think from the first time that I started making contracts and then, you know, numbers came in and things like that, it was always lawyers. 
um, who were just in my team who would um, negotiate um, money and kind of put it into perspective, well-meaning lawyers and people I picked or that actually worked for me. And I was really lucky. Um, the second lawyer I ever worked with, and then I worked with her for over a decade, I think she was just, you know, a woman and she kind of, I was the only woman in the room and she was the only woman in the room and she had just been an assistant from someone who just stopped working. And then we were both like, I was like, hi, and she's like, I'll help you out. And then, you know, we kind of just looked through contracts and she would tell me what's, because she had other people that she worked contracts for, she could tell me this is um, not enough. And then it was, my agent who helped me with getting paid for something and they would always push for way more than what I would actually ask for. I was like, I was just there for four hours and it was really fun. And I poured all my knowledge from my 19 years experience into it, but it's fine. And then um, again, now um, I'm speaking when it comes to money. I was also speaking to my agent about another film while I, where I sang for. So it is, um, I was just thinking how to, make that into one thing. And also before when Shruti was talking about producing and you know, 1000 for a track and 7000 for a track, I was like, I immediately wanted to jump in and be like, let's talk about what producers get. But now I'm thinking like, oh God, we need to do an episode for what do producers get? Then we need to do an episode for what do composers get? And then we need to do an episode for what would a songwriter get? Um, I mean, the answer is probably you're not, you're not getting enough. It's probably always the right answer. Um, and I'm going to definitely take your tip on board and ask my male colleagues, like, what are you charging for this? Because I usually ask my, my female colleagues, and I think that's, that's a mistake. <laughs> I have to factor in that everybody else gets tons more. Mm. Yeah, sorry, I was really, I was really like just going through, I don't know if you could, obviously, you can't see me, but if you can hear it in my voice, I'm like, <laughs> kind of just looking like admin, I'm like, wow, then there was this invoice and then this was completely different. And for this thing, I don't charge anything, but I get such and such percentage of PPD. Who pays me this actually? Where's this, where's all this stuff? Like, where is it even coming from? Like I get PPL, then I get GEMA, then I get GVL, which is another German thing. Then I get like label pays, some producer percentages, maybe, you know, then I get um, licenses. <laughs> it's like everywhere. So it's, yeah, it's mad. No, not easy price tag. And it's like what um, Honey was saying, you know, this industry is complex and now music is digital. I mean, there are so many things. Um, I'm aware of time, so I'm going to I'm going to lead us down to land, even though I think this is I think we should we should hold like a conference. But that's, you know, and it will be a paid conference because we know how much we're worth now. It'll be a paid yeah. conference. This was like a starter fee. Like, you know, when you join Netflix, you get the first month free. This was that. And then from now on, it's like a paid thing. But what I want to just quickly respond to Shruti, and I was just thinking about what you're saying about, you know, how much, you, because there are so many different sections and, you know, there's the, how much do you charge for a song? It's so amorphous. Um, I was thinking about like some of the younger artists that, because, you know, the, the music industry model is a broken model. And so we're trying to make something in a broken space, which is really, really difficult. But um, I think of people like Chance the Rapper and other artists that have are okay with not charging for their music, but offsetting 
what they're not earning from their music from earning through other things so you know merch has become a huge thing um and so it's kind of like they're indirectly charging for the song through like caps and bags and or and i mean now obviously we have we've had covid but you know you'd earn the money back through gigs and what i've having to to do exactly yeah covid has put a wrinkle on a lot of the ways we've um offset not earning through streams and downloads and stuff like that but i'm what i'm having to think about at the moment is is my why so i'm like why am i doing this and who is this music for and how can i if if i still want people to hear this music how can i earn even if I'm not going to earn it the traditional routes, because I'm having to think of new models to do stuff, which is, which is difficult. Because normally you're like, like we've all said, you know how many hours it's took, how much experience you have doing the thing that you're making. You shoot, you talk about your films and all of those things, and it's not necessarily reflected in the, you know, the salary that you get at the end of the day. But I'm just having to, we, like I said, the model is broken. So how do we, firstly, exist in a, a model that is broken, and secondly start to create a whole new one, which I actually think is happening. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, it is a broken model. I don't know. You guys are in the UK. Um, I talk to Tom Gray a lot <laughs> because the broken record campaign has really lit a fire under my ass. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that uh, in the States to push the same kind of conversation uh, forward. But I do think I have to say, like, it is a complex industry and all that. But when I'm told that over and over again, it almost starts to feel like an excuse to keep us working this hard to figure out our lives. Um, and I think maybe it's, you know, however many months of lockdown we're in and I'm still working and I'm responsible now for so many of my friends who are players still working. And it feels like so much of the burden of saving our music community is on the musicians themselves. And we're using our very limited resources to help each other, which has been really beautiful to watch. But like the more I see us just kind of running ourselves thin and getting exhausted and still fight and like seeing our friends who work at, you know, bigger companies in the music industry still earn their salaries and, you know, work from home um, off of the work that we're doing and taking care of our own while everyone else is taking care of their own. It just feels like the divide feels bigger and bigger. And then, you know, I had managers tell me when I'm fighting for more fees and more points um, on a record that I feel like I deserve that much. Um, I've had people tell me, well, that's part of being a producer. Like, if you want to be a producer, you just have to know that that's the work you put in and that you also have to take care of. You have to get used to arguing all this stuff. And I'm sort of like, well, I don't know. This seems like you're just trying to keep me stuck in this hamster wheel where I'm always fighting for what to me seems like pennies compared to like what everyone else is operating under. And Tom Gray once said to me, like, matter of factly, when I was trying to explain the U.S. situation, he was like, well, you know, what other industry would people providing content or intellectual property be okay with the way they're be like you take out the word music and you replace it with like tech or any other you know intellectual property related industry and people would just be like this is mad you know <laughs> this is mad that people I mean not even talking about recoupment deals and all that but the fact that we even have to just parse through what the value of everything is because there is no standard to and then just saying well it's complicated and you just have to keep learning to me that seems also on some level like a tool to keep artists and creatives like in their place too um 
I don't think, again, I'm not pointing fingers. I don't think it's anybody's fault because everybody is equally, we need all parts of the music industry to keep functioning. But it does feel especially weighty right right now. And it always has been. But now it's just, I think everyone's getting exhausted going back to the point of advocating for ourselves. I don't know if I've learned it yet, but I'm certainly more exhausted. So it's coming out whether I like it or not all the time these days. So um, anyway. No, that that's great. Um, I'm, I want to end by asking each of you what is the one thing you want people to ponder it's how we started but i also want to end this what is the one thing you want people to take away or ponder or to put into action off the back of this conversation i think i'll keep mine simple and because we've talked about a lot of amazing things but um people should ponder what they think what role arts plays in society if they think it has a purpose, especially now. Um, I would love consumers to also reflect on the value of the arts, non-musicians to reflect on the value of the arts. Like, what would a world without art be like, really? And do you think it contributes and changes people and inspires people to be better, to move the needle forward, to change the world? Do you believe art has that power? Great. Honey? Um, I think I would say uh, just a couple of things. One is, you know, it's, it is cliche, I'm afraid, but, you know, know your worth and um, never be afraid to stand your ground when it comes to your worth and, and understand that being assertive is not the same as being aggressive. Um, and that's, that's really, really critical. But also I think for creatives, you know, very few people can do what you do. And I kind of feel like that's, you know, that's a refrain that should be going around in every creative's mind is that you know, this is a skill. This isn't just something that, you know, like you said, you did your 30 seconds or one minute. You ask most people to do that in a year that, you know, you, and you, and you came up with something that not only worked, but captured a moment, captured all the, you know, that's what music does. But frankly, most of us can't do that. So I think that if, you know, yeah, just understand your value. And I think it goes to what Shruti said is that, this is a, it's a critical skill and we have to make a, a way you're it's you're entitled to want to do what you want to do and get paid for it and you know as you're saying about it sort of it's a hobby even if it's a hobby it gives pleasure it it it, it adds value and therefore you should benefit from that value great sam Aleph. okay i was just gonna um i was thinking there were so many things but i think one of the things um, you had touched on before is with the industry being broken, everybody should see this as a new era as we do for you know the rest of the world and everything that's happening. So much is changing and there are so many platforms out there that give us control over our work, um, just generally in society, but it, as musicians and as freelancers as well and people who work in the industry, it's not as it was. So I think we need to you know take advantage of those things and educate ourselves use social media platforms for for benefit for benefit for yourself not just for you know streams of consciousness and, and kind of chatting but we can use them um, social media platforms to market ourselves to kind of sell our, our products to promote ourselves um i would say this to musicians especially don't just rely on labels to do all the work for you you can put a lot of work in and you can get a lot out of out of doing that I think for um freelancers as well just step out of the you know the existing model think of the existing model as something that was created 20th century even a little bit before that as well 
we're in the 21st century now we can just completely disrupt the system and create a new model do it little by little and you know we'll get there fabulous Alev so many things on my mind again <laughs> um there's there's two things that I that I think would be great for people to think about um and same for myself um obviously because I have been thinking about them probably it's it's why I think it's it's been so beneficial was for me particularly was something that I talked to my mother about as well, especially as women, we are sold a, a whole lot of crap about ourselves and told um, a whole lot of things that aren't true. And one is you don't, nobody makes it alone. None of the big shots that are getting paid well are there because they worked so hard and it was just, yes, everybody works hard, but it's, it's a lie that the people at the top and the people who make the most money work the hardest that is actually completely the opposite way around um and also one thing to tell women is that you know this kind of the way we hustle for ourselves and we make it somewhere and everything um it, nobody does that no human being does that so we have um we have us um through time and in the present and then the other thing would probably be for those listening who do, um, you know, who have abilities to pay people or everyone has, you know, disposable income or however you use your income is, we have uh, responsibilities. You probably haven't paid someone right. You know, you probably know, you probably know on that project, it, it, you know, think about that. Did I... Did, did I make my contribution to the world I want to live in? Because we can't constantly, I, I see that a lot, that responsibility is something that everyone wants to kind of, it's like, and I'm going to avoid, like no one's responsible. It's like just kind of, you know, you have to be accountable and responsible for the world you live in. And even in my closest environment, I know a lot of people, everyone I know has power and has responsibilities and we have to resume them and really make it um, make that count and and really even when like Shruti says we the whole music industry I, I I am only able to do what I do because everyone helped out and 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 and, and assumed responsibility for the the community they're in especially right now, the community, like Shruti has said, has been wonderful to watch coming together, but because we've always been together, but that community is so much larger and whoever's listening, you're probably part of that without even knowing. So um, do the responsible thing, pay people. I love that. Do the responsible thing, pay people. I love that. And I, and I would just say, one of the things that even listening to this and reflecting as we've been talking is you're probably more qualified than you think you are. You're probably more skilled than you think you are. You probably know more than you actually think you do. And that will affect your confidence, you know, that you really do know more than you think you do. And the second thing I would say is find your team that has been find your team when you know what your weaknesses are so I have been quite intentional if I about finding people that if I know I'm not very good about knowing the price of things or 
um, you know, how much I should charge or being demonstrative about stuff. I'm like, I'm going to find that person who always charges 10 times more than he should really charge, but still gets paid for it. I'll go and find that person <laughs> and he, and he'll coach. And I've done that quite a few times and it's really worked in my favor. So I'm like, find your team. It's taken me a long time, but, um, and it's still happening, but it's really, really, really made a difference and it's affected certain decisions I've made. Um, so that's what I would say. But um, Alev, Honey, Sam, Shruti, thank you so much for your time. This is like one of those things I feel like if this, this would be like a day conference and then we'd go and take a break, you know, we'd open it up for questions. There'd be like questions and then, and then, yeah. And then we'd come back after lunch and, you know, talk about stuff. So maybe we'll come back. Alev's saying the next episode, we should talk about points and pounds and money sums, like specific things. We can potentially do that. Um, but for now, I want to say thank you so much for your time. You really have been great. So much, there's such a well of knowledge here. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great. Uh, really thank great. You. I don't want to go. I want to meet you all. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to get the drinks. I know, right? I know. Be like, now let's go into the kitchen and have some food <laughs> and wine. Exactly. That's what I mean. Thank you again to Shruti, Honey, Alev and Sam. Hope you found that conversation not only enjoyable, but also informative. If you do have any questions or comments, do contact us on Instagram at Holding Up The Ladder or on Twitter at H-U-T-L underscore. Guest bios and social media and links to the reports I mentioned can also be found in the podcast blurb. Thank you so much for listening. It's so great to hear how Holding Up The Ladder is inspiring and encouraging you. Speaking to all these fabulous people, I feel the same way. Do continue to leave your comments, share, like, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also donate at Holding Up The Ladder, hashtag H-U-T-L. And new episodes of Holding Up The Ladder will now air on Wednesdays rather than Fridays. Next week, we're heading to Bali in Indonesia, where I'll be talking bamboo, architecture and sustainability with Ella Hardy founder and creative director of groundbreaking design and architecture firm, Ibuku. And I was still seeking meaning and purpose. And as a fine artist, I had failed to commit to a material. Mm -hmm. I, I went from literally from ceramic sculpture to super eight film <laughs> um, and like, and all over the place. And suddenly I realized that if, I wanted to be involved in, 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 in a material that was good for the future, mm -hmm. that nothing could beat bamboo. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that if you could make beautiful spaces out of it, then I wanted to be part of that. So I simply just joined because I was inspired and I wanted to be part of it. Until next time. <laughs>